mist is damn near impenetrable. Standing at the prow of a traditional Cambodian canoe, you produce the hanky from your breast pocket to mop your sweaty brow. The heat is intense, made all the more unbearable by the humidity. Mosquitoes annoyingly buzz around your ears, and you swat them away like the blood-sucking devils they are. The boatman laughs, a hearty peal that exposes his gleaming white teeth. He's all too familiar with the nasty insects, but being native to the region, he's grown accustomed to them. How much farther, you inquire in broken Khmer. You don't mean to be or sound rude, but such conditions hardly bring out the best in you. Almost there, the boatman replies, nodding reassuringly. Taking a shaky breath, you wonder if this particular venture has been in vain. The truth of the matter is that the place you seek has never been lost. Despite the fact that it rests on the edge of a dense jungle, the overgrowth has never reclaimed it. People, especially locals, have known about it for centuries, and even Europeans like yourself have made the trek to chronicle and catalog its many wonders. In fact, your satchel back at the boarding house where you're staying contains one such account by a 16th century Portuguese Jesuit-turned-explorer who was among the first outsiders to bear witness to it. The purpose of this expedition is to merely provide even more information, an update of sorts, for the outside world. Having lost yourself in your thoughts, you realize that the mist hasn't let up, and has, in fact, appeared to have grown thicker. Heaving a frustrated sigh, you once again turn to the boatman. Where is it? you ask in Khmer. How will we ever be able to find it in all this mist? But the boatman merely raises his finger and points. There, he answers, and you follow his pointing with your eyes. As if by magic, the mist lifts like a curtain. There, silhouetted against the morning sun, is the massive temple complex known as Angkor Wat. Its five elaborate towers point skyward like the fingers of an immense hand. It's flanked by several palm trees, which are reflected in the river's murky water. Even from where you're standing, the stonework and craftsmanship are unlike anything you've ever seen before. So intricate and detailed are they that it's no surprise that it has survived this long. The scenario I've just described played out in the late 1840s, when French explorer Henri Mouault, having embarked on an extensive research tour of Southeast Asia, ventured deep within the heart of Cambodia to chronicle his findings and discoveries at what is believed to be the largest religious monument in the world. Built in the early 12th century, Angkor Wat, from the Khmer for Temple City, is a massive and majestic temple complex that began life as a Hindu temple, but by the end of the 12th century had been repurposed as a Buddhist one. Commissioned and built under the rule of King Suryavarman II of the Khmer Empire, it took nearly 30 years to complete and proved pivotal in converting Cambodia into a majority Buddhist nation. Why was Angkor Wat built? Who was the man responsible for its creation? And, though neglected for centuries, how did it shape the Cambodian national identity? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. For nearly 900 years, Angkor Wat has stood on the banks of the Siem Reap River in Cambodia, an impressive and dazzling sight that almost seems to have naturally sprouted from the dense jungle underbrush. Though no longer an active religious complex, it remains an important pilgrimage site for primarily Cambodian Buddhists, and draws some 2.6 million international tourists annually. But while people come to bask in its opulent splendor, or to pray to the Buddha for blessings and good fortune, many are unaware of the vast, rich history behind its creation. Who would build such a magnificent structure, and how has it endured for so long? The answer to the first of these questions is King Suryavarman II, the ruler of the vast and powerful Khmer Empire, a Southeast Asian sovereign state that controlled all of Cambodia and most of Laos, Thailand, and southern Vietnam, his reign saw significant growth and the construction of several lavish architectural marvels. As such, his rule is considered a golden age in Cambodian history. 
born in the late 11th century to his father, Kisitindra Aditya, and mother, Narendra Lakshmi, on a provincial estate near present-day Siem Reap, the then capital of the Khmer Empire, known in those days as Angkor, he grew up at a time of great political instability. With the central government having been weakened through a series of power grabs and infighting, as a young prince, he made several moves and maneuvers behind the scenes to claim the throne. As to be expected, his ascent was met with a great deal of opposition. First he had to contend with his rival, another young prince from an aristocratic family named Nripatindra Varman, who claimed himself as the empire's rightful heir. In addition to this, Surya Varman also had to oust his great-uncle, the elderly king Daranindra Varman, whose rule was largely ineffectual. Needless to say, a violent and bloody battle for power ensued in the early 12th century, in which the young Surya Varman emerged victorious. He was crowned in 1113. An aged Brahmin, or Hindu holy man, named Divakara Pandita, officiated the ceremony, and gave the young monarch the title by which he's known today, with Surya being the Sanskrit word for sun, and Varman being a suffix adopted by Khmer royals meaning shield or protector. From the start, the new king proved to be more religious-oriented than his predecessors. His first order of business was to bestow Divakara Pandita with resplendent gifts including gold rings, bejeweled crowns, fans, and even a palanquin, a sort of wheelless coach in which a passenger is carried by two or four servants. He also studied sacred Hindu rituals and celebrated holidays by throwing religious festivals. Not long after his enthronement, he sent the Brahmin on a lengthy tour of temples within the empire, including the sacred mountaintop complex at Preya Vihear, to which the monarch gifted a golden statue of Shiva, one of the chief deities of Hinduism. From such beginnings, perhaps it comes as no surprise that Angkor Wat was built under his reign. But the question remains, why was it built in the first place? As was the case with several monarchs throughout history, Surya Varman wished to not only assert his power over the Khmer Empire, but to also build lasting monuments as a tribute to his reign. The purpose of Angkor Wat was to serve as the official religious center of the state, as well as the vital downtown section of the capital. Surprisingly, when first proposed and upon its completion, it was not known as Angkor Wat. That moniker would only be bestowed upon it well after Surya Varman's rule. Its original name, however, remains unknown, as neither the cornerstone nor contemporary inscriptions reveal any clues as to its first title. Historians have many theories, though. As the temple was built for and dedicated to the Hindu god Vishnu, for example, speculations that it was called Vara Vishnu Lok have circulated since at least the last century. Literally meaning the king who has gone to the supreme world of Vishnu, it too is a title believed to have been bestowed after Surya Varman's death. Regardless of its original name, work began on Angkor Wat in 1116, just three years into the new monarch's rule, and its completion in 1150 would outlive the man who envisioned it. So what did this impressive structure initially look like? To be fair, little of it has changed since its completion, a testament to the builders and the materials they used in its construction, and can still be seen more or less as it looked almost nine centuries ago. Let's start by examining the site it sits upon, as well as its initial ground plan. The complex at Angkor Wat rests on an island in the middle of a man-made waterway, a moat of sorts, and connected to the surrounding land via a bridge. This moat served as both a protective barrier and the temple's water supply. The structure itself combines two uniquely Cambodian styles of architecture. The so-named Temple Mountain, the standard design for Khmer State temples at the time, and the concentric galleries plan, an architectural style in which a central structure is flanked by surrounding terraces, colonnades, or walls. There's also strong evidence to suggest that the temple was used in accordance with celestial phenomena, namely the solstices. Its east-west orientation and vantage points from terraces within the complex reveal that specific towers align precisely with the sunrise on both summer and winter solstices. 
Angkor Wat's structure is also highly symbolic. It's meant to be a representation of Mount Meru, the five-peaked mountain home of the Hindu pantheon. As such, Angkor Wat possesses five identical towers, with the one in the middle being slightly taller than the other four. It's this main tower that aligns with the morning sun on the vernal or spring equinox, and since the complex is oriented more to the west than to the east, it's believed Suryavarman intended it to be his funerary temple from the start. This is reinforced by wooden bas-reliefs within the temple itself, which depict scenes in prasavya, or counterclockwise, order, a reverse of the normal order that in Hindu funerary rites is how rituals are performed following one's death. Angkor Wat was built primarily of sandstone, a material that, by the early 12th century, Khmer artisans and architects had become quite skilled and confident in using. When visiting the sacred site, much of what you see is sandstone, though the outer wall that surrounds the main structure was constructed largely of laterite, a soil and rock type rich in aluminum and iron that can be found in hot, wet, tropical areas, such as Cambodia. Because of its high iron oxide content, it boasts a rich, rust-red color, a nice contrast to the grayish tan of the sandstone. The temple has drawn its biggest praise, however, from the harmony of its design, the likes of which Maurice Glaze, Angkor Wat's conservator in the 1950s, described as, quote, having attained a classic perfection by the restrained monumentality of its finely balanced elements and the precise arrangement of its proportions. It is a work of power, unity, and style, unquote. But just what are these elements, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. As previously stated, there are five identical towers at Angkor Wat, the central one of which is slightly taller than the other four that flank it. These are known as ogivals, round-pointed towers that, in this instance, are shaped like lotus buds, an important flower in both Hinduism and Buddhism that represents, among other things, purity, rebirth, and enlightenment. There are half-galleries to broaden passageways, cruciform terraces not unlike the floor plans of medieval churches, and axial galleries to connect enclosures to one another. Decorative elements include devatas, or carved stone representations of lesser Hindu deities, wooden bas-reliefs, including a prominent one depicting King Suryavarman himself, and, at one point, gilded stucco on the towers, which sadly fell prey to looters throughout the centuries. The grounds also feature exemplary and beautifully intricate stone statuary, most of which are drawn from Hindu lore. The Naga, a seven-headed serpent, can be seen beside several lions. Much of the statuary has been restored as elements of the originals were lost due to the ravages of time. Now, let's command our attention to what's inside the famed complex at Angkor Wat. For, as the merchant in the opening scene of Disney's Aladdin so wisely put it, like so many things, it is not what is outside, but what is inside that counts. Visitors who visit Angkor Wat are first greeted by the impressive and imposing outer wall, which is a whopping 3,360 feet, or 1,024 meters, by 2,631 feet, 802 meters, and 15 feet, 4.5 meters in height. It's surrounded by a 98-foot, 30-meter area of open ground and the aforementioned moat, which is 620 feet, 190 meters wide, and a total perimeter of 3 miles, 5 kilometers. Once you've passed this outer wall, you'll be directed to one of the southern towers, which boasts a nice surprise within it, a gigantic eight-armed statue of the Buddha that began its life in the central tower as an image of the Hindu god Vishnu. Three rectangular galleries rise to the central tower, with each level higher than the previous. Each gallery has a gopura, an ornate entrance common in Hindu temples, and cloisters which were later used to house Buddhist pilgrims who visited the site. Inscriptions left by the pilgrims are written mostly in Khmer, but also in Burmese and Japanese. To the north of the cloisters are two libraries which were used by both priests and members of the royal family to study Hindu and later Buddhist scripture. In all, it took over 30 years to complete this impressive structure. Angkor Wat was reportedly finished following Suryavarman's death in 1150, adding to the theory that it was built primarily to serve as his funerary temple. 
27 years later, in 1177, the complex was sacked by the Chams, a collection of independent states that existed on the fringes of the Khmer Empire in what's now central and southern Vietnam, and the classic enemy of the Khmer people. Not long after this conflict, a new king, Jayavarman VII, whose name means shield of victory in Sanskrit, brought peace and order to the empire and lovingly restored Angkor Wat, though he established a new capital and state temple in nearby Angkor Tham and Bayon, respectively. It was Angkor Tham that would serve as Cambodia's capital for the remainder of the Khmer Empire. It was during Jayavarman's reign in the late 12th century that the massive temple complex was converted under the monarch's orders into a Buddhist religious site. His reason for doing this was, following the skirmish with the Chams, in which several setbacks were endured by his forces, he felt that the Hindu gods had failed him. Over time, the Hindu sculptures within, such as the eight-armed Vishnu that now stands in one of the South Towers, were converted into Buddhist icons and were replaced with Buddhist art. The temple would also outlast the Khmer Empire itself, which fell in 1431 when it was conquered by the Ayutthaya kingdom of neighboring Siam, present-day Thailand. Though never completely abandoned, the temple fell into disrepair, but was still frequently visited by Buddhists from all over Asia, who saw it as a holy pilgrimage site. For over 400 years, Angkor Wat will be under Ayutthaya control. Remember at the beginning of the episode, when I recounted the exploits of one Henri Mouot, who visited Angkor Wat in the 1840s? If you recall, he wasn't the first European to visit the complex, though his trip proved quite fruitful in that he more thoroughly chronicled the art, architecture, and even made detailed drawings of the temple. That distinction goes to Antonio da Madalena, a Portuguese friar who bore witness to the incredible monument in 1586. It is of such extraordinary construction that it is not possible to describe it with a pen, he wrote, particularly since it is like no other building in the world. It has towers and decorations and all the refinements which the human genius can conceive of. Then, during Mouot's famed expedition, the French explorer penned one of the more famous and poignant descriptions of Angkor Wat to date. One of these temples, a rival to that of Solomon, and erected by some ancient Michelangelo, might take an honorable place beside our most beautiful buildings. It is grander than anything left to us by Greece or Rome, and presents a sad contrast to the state of barbarism in which the nation is now plunged. That barbarism to which Monsieur Mouault was referring was, of course, the sad state of affairs that the Cambodian people faced under Thai rule. With their native architecture no longer under their possession, they were disillusioned, to say the least, and knew not what the future held for them, or the wonderful monument that, by then, had become the undisputed beacon and symbol of Cambodian national identity. But salvation would come for both Angkor Wat and the Cambodian people. Surprisingly, when the French occupied Cambodia as a protectorate on August 11, 1863, as French forces invaded Siam, Cambodia was able to reclaim the lands she had lost in the northwest part of the country way back in 1431. This ensured the temple complex's artistic and architectural legacy, and was the result of the combined efforts of both the French and Cambodians. Thanks in large part to Mouault's descriptions and illustrations, the French fell in love with Angkor Wat, and the landmark was first seen by French citizens in France when a plaster-cast replica of it was constructed for Louis de la Porte's Musée Indochinois, or Indochinese Museum, which was displayed in Paris's Trocadero Palace from the 1880s through the mid-1920s. It wasn't until the 1930s, however, that Angkor Wat received international attention. At the famed Paris Colonial Exhibition, held over a six-month period in 1931, a nearly-to-scale replica of the temple complex was created, in which guests and visitors could see for themselves the splendor and opulence of the crown jewel of Khmer architecture. The replica inspired several archaeological expeditions and restorations to Cambodia throughout the 20th century, and when Cambodia received her independence from France on November 9, 1953, she regained full control of Angkor Wat. 
Since then, the Cambodian government, as well as international organizations, have done their best to preserve this most vital and important symbol, the efforts of which were halted in the 1970s and 80s thanks to the civil war and subsequent Khmer Rouge regime that rocked the nation to its core. Miraculously, during this period, Angkor Wat sustained little damage, the most severe of which are a few bullet holes from gunfire between Khmer Rouge and Vietnamese forces. In 1992, the entire complex was deemed a UNESCO World Heritage Site by the United Nations. The phrase, if these walls could talk, is one I'd certainly love to apply to Angkor Wat. Indeed, if those sandstone walls could speak, what would they say? Perhaps they'd shed some light on their origins. Maybe they'd tell stories of the glory days of Surya Varman's rule, or give a detailed timeline of the Khmer Empire itself and what followed. Though not gifted with the ability of speech, I think the art and architecture at Angkor Wat speak volumes in ways ordinary conversation never could. To this day, archaeologists and historians continue to lovingly study and research this most impressive and beautiful of monuments, one whose beauty and grandeur will hopefully never fade. Thanks for listening. Did you enjoy taking this tour of Angkor Wat with me? If you did, let me know in the comments section of the accompanying Instagram post at History Loves Company. That's history underscore loves underscore company. If you like what you hear and wish to support me in this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. Listening, liking, sharing, and following help too, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join me next Thursday as we take a comprehensive look at the life and times of a towering figure of Ethiopian history, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.